We live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, don't we? Uh, you think about, uh, this was the picture I took over at uh, Tenalium Bible Camp in Port Allsworth this summer. I was able to fly in this little tiny airplane as I hung on for dear life. We go passing through this mountain range, just breathtaking view after breathtaking view. And it was reminding me of the time when I first saw Denali. Well, I saw it when I was like three, but I didn't really know what in the world was going on when I was three. But we... Um, as an adult, I had a couple college buddies come up and visit, and I remember we were driving through the park, and you know how, if you've been back there, those old school buses with the, the green paint on them, and you got the guy with the headset, there's a bear at six o'clock, and all the tourists, click, 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 and so we're moving through the, the park, and we're rounding the corner, and we hadn't been able to see the mountain for a little while, because as you know, two-thirds of the time, Denali, which creates its own weather system, you can't see it, but we come around this corner as we're nearing the Eielson Visitor Center, and this is the picture of what I saw taken by my own camera not a cloud in the sky. And for one of the first times and only times in my life, I was speechless. That's a modern miracle, isn't it, if you don't believe in Jesus? And you know what's never happened before? Nobody's ever walked to a base of a mountain, like, Mc, like McKinley, sorry, Denali, and, and 20,000 feet in elevation, and you walk up to the base of this mountain and you go, man, I am big and powerful. Look at me, right? When you come, and I was thinking about, as I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Denali slack-jawed, I'm thinking about all the things that mankind has done, the, the impressive things that we've built, the Sears Tower, right? Uh, the, the ancient pyramids. And you take those, and you put those next to Denali. And it's a blowout. God wins, hands down. We could never touch the beauty and depth of what God has created. And that's just here on planet Earth. You zoom back out and you look at the billions of stars and galaxies that he has created in this universe and that we most likely will never even see all the things that God has created. And sometimes, sometimes our words are flat out inadequate and silence can be the most elegant thing that we say. And in the book of Romans, Paul has sort of been our Sherpa. He's been guiding us up this mountain. And he's been showing us the majestic plan of God's salvation for the whole world through Jesus. Showing us the breathtaking power of the gospel. And in Romans 9 through 11 in particular, he's been helping us climb to, toward this peak. He's been showing us God's sovereign plan for all of human history, how he chose the nation of Israel and through Israel saved the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike, and that one day he's going to come back and all of this plan will be culminated. And, and as we've been walking, it's a tiring, difficult climb, isn't it? Romans 9 through 11 is not for the faint of heart. And we need some oxygen, right? I know it's been tiring for me, especially now that we're doing the two-service thing. I at least need a cough drop, right? So as we've been ascending this peak, getting a glimpse of God's glorious plan, we're about to take this turn, and, and we're going to go back down into the fertile valley of Romans 12 through 16 and see this very practical application of the gospel in our lives. Before we do that, we're going to, in November, take a break to talk about missions, what God's doing in the world, and then in December, take a break for Christmas to see how God came into our world, and in January, we'll pick it back up with Romans chapter 12. But this morning, Paul's going to take us as our guide, we're going to round this corner and get this breathtaking peak at the, at the, at the, at the summit of God's majesty. And Paul, what we find is he can't help himself from exploding into this God-glorifying doxology, this hymn of praise to his God. Let's pause for a second. Let's, let's pray to this God before we jump in. God, may you open our eyes 
to behold and embrace this dazzling display of your beauty, to worship you as you alone deserve. God, worship of you is the best thing for us. It's what our hearts were created for. It's what our hearts long for, you and you alone. Amen. Three things we're going to see here as, as Paul closes us out in Romans 11. The first one is uh, the mercy of God is unfathomable. I had to practice that one, unfathomable. The mercy of God is unfathomable. What does it mean? The Hebrew concept of mercy is, is this. It's showing compassion, that's an emotion word, and help, that's an action word, to the afflicted, to those seeking aid, and to the wretched and the lost. Now, a couple of things as, as we look at this. I, I was thinking of the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you remember he sees this man who's been robbed, beaten, and left for dead at the side of the road. And Jesus tells us this story. This man is filled with compassion for the person laying in the road. He cares about him. And because of that compassion, he's moved to action. That he picks the man up, that he dresses his wounds, that he takes him to this inn. He pays all of his hospital bills. And what Jesus says is, he says, this man has showed mercy. He's unpacking, he's answering the question in context, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Is what does it mean to love your neighbor? This is what it looks like to love your neighbor. Now, the first thing to note in this definition is the one being shown mercy has to acknowledge their desperate situa situation. Who, do they, who does he help? The afflicted, those seeking aid. And listen, the second that you and I forget and we lose sight of the fact that we are undeserving sinners, that we lose sight of our lostness apart from Jesus, that we have no hope beyond the grave, that we are, are condemned in God's sight, deserving nothing but his wrath, if we lose sight of that, then this becomes meaningless. Because saved from what? Given mercy from, from what helpless situation? This truth ceases to matter if we don't see how desperate we are in need of God's mercy every single day. And you know, when we're walking around on flat ground, it's easy to lose perspective on that, right? Because we can just compare ourselves to other people. I can feel better than someone else. I feel like I'm doing better than other people, right? Well, at least I'm not sleeping around like her. At least I'm not an addict like he is, or maybe not as bad of an addict as he is. We start uh, playing this comparison game to try to feel good about ourselves. But what happens when we stand at the foot of Mount Majesty and we see God in his infinite glory and in his holiness? And what do we find? We, 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 like Isaiah, remember when Isaiah walks into the throne room of God? What is his response? He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I'm surrounded by a people of unclean lips, lost and in need of your mercy. The second, I love that not only do we need a mercy, but we've been shown this mercy. And you know what he says here? This definition of mercy is not just that God helps us. He's like, well, I, I'm God. I have to throw them a rope. Ugh, get up here. It's also compassion. When we seek God, what we find is that this God wants to show us mercy. He wants us to be near him. And, and you picture, I, I picture the story of the, of the prodigal son. When the son comes slumping home, the dad's not rolling his eyes. Fine, I'm your dad. There's some contract I signed. I have to take you back. It says when he was a long way off, the father hikes up that weird New Testament robe thing. And he sprints 
I mean, he Usain bolts it to his son, and he picks him up, and he twirls him around, and he says, everybody, start killing animals. We need to feast. My son is home. He shows him mercy, seen in the action toward his son, but also in the compassion that he shows his son. And this is the mercy that God has for us. He wanted to help us, and he gave us Jesus. And this is what Paul wants to do. He wants to zoom back out and show us in full display the, the glorious mercy of God. And John Piper, he sums up this last section, and I, I like the way he words this. This is, man, you could unpack this for an hour, but he says, God has designed and guided history. That's what we've been walking through in Romans 9 through 11, all of human history. Both its disobedience and its obedience, the good decisions and bad decisions we've made, God's used them all so that in the end it will most fully display two things, the reliability of his promises, that God is faithful. If he said it, he will do it, and the magnificence of his mercy, the compassion and action he showed us in his plan to save us. Why? To prevent human pride, showing this is not coming from us, and to produce white-hot worship. This is what this all is about. We get a glimpse of the mountain of God, our hearts will respond in worship, in worship. Now, there's three people that he has shown mercy to, in particular, in Romans 9 through 11, and he recaps those. First of all, to the Gentiles. This is the non-Jews. Remember, that's all the Gentile means, the non-Jew. So, for, for just as you, verse 30 of chapter 11, and he's talking to the Gentiles, parentheses mine, uh, just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, all of us born into sin, deserving nothing but God's wrath, but now have received mercy. How do we receive help? How were we saved? Because of their, Israel's, disobedience. So we said that because of Israel's disobedience, namely the rejection of Jesus leading to his death, that gave us mercy. How? When they killed Jesus, it was that very act of disobedience that caused his death, burial, and resurrection, which is exactly what we needed to happen in order for us to be reconciled to God. And then he goes, not only did I show mercy to the Gentiles, make a way back for the Gentiles, but look at what I did next to the Jews. Verse 31, so they, Israel, too, now have been disobedient, right, in their rejection of Jesus, in order, how is he using that just beyond the Gentiles? In order that by the mercy shown to you, the Gentiles, they, Israel, also may now receive mercy. Everybody confused as I am, right? So here, here's what he's saying. Not only did he use Israel's killing of Jesus to save all the Gentiles, but that ultimately... This is going to end up saving Israel as well. We saw that back in verse 11, they become jealous of God's treatment of the Gentile people. And the next time Jesus comes back, the next time he comes back, he's going to return as king. And he says at that moment, all of Israel, the nation of Israel as a whole, is going to embrace Jesus as their savior. And he will rule and rule and, and, rule and reign from his throne in Jerusalem, just like he promised from day one. Mercy will be shown to the Jew and the Gentile. Now, it's important for us to note here that Paul in this section is talking about people as a whole, not individuals. And so when we're talking about Jew and Gentile, he's not talking about all the, the Jewish people, you know, being disobedient toward God. There were, I mean, there were followers of Jesus that didn't want him crucified. And he's not talking about every Gentile being, we're all sinners. But remember in the Old Testament, remember like Rahab? Rahab was a Gentile who placed her faith in God. And we see today in, in, in the New Testament and in, in our age where we are in 2018, Jewish people putting their faith in Jesus and becoming a part of the, the church. He's not speaking about every individual in this passage. He is giving us 
an overview, a sweeping overview of God's dealings with people as, as whole uh, people groups in, in history. So it's important for us to remember that as he's talking about this. But what we do know is to every single individual, God has shown mercy. To the Jew, to the Gentile, and every one of us. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What's he saying there? The word consigned, it means to shut together. And we got some, I know we got some commercial fishermen. I'm looking at one right here in the middle, Bill. He, uh, if you, this, is a, this is a fisherman word. And it means to close up like in a net. He says, everybody has been shut up. All of us little sinful fishies have been closed up in this net in our disobedience, guilty where we stand, so that when we receive salvation, it is very obvious that this is mercy coming from God, not that we deserve it. And if you click on the hyperlink and it takes you back to Romans chapter 319, this is what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What he's saying here with the law, when, when we saw God's holy standard, when we stood at the foot of the mountain, not comparing ourselves to others, but to God's holiness, we see that everybody falls short. And he says, in this moment, every mouth will be stopped, will be shut up in our own obedience, disobedience. And no one will stand at the foot of God's mountain and go, but God, but it's their fault, but I'm better than her. None of us will have an argument before God in that moment. He says the mouth will be closed. Because here, here's two ways we can approach God. We can approach him with an open mouth, arguing, trying to defend ourselves, make our case for why he should accept us. And when we do that with open mouths, we have closed fists. And we are unable to receive his mercy. But when we come with closed mouths and open hands, we receive the compassion and action of the person of Jesus. And he welcomes the prodigal home. And we ascend the mountain to the holiness of God in the name of Jesus. Are you coming to him with a closed mouth and open hands? Or an open mouth and closed hands? The mercy of God has been shown to everybody and we cannot fathom it. Secondly, the mind, the mind of God is unsearchable. The mercy of God's unfathomable. The mind of God is unsearchable. I remember um, as a senior in high school, uh, we won the state championship. I try to mention that as often as possible, uh, living in the past. We, uh, after we won the state title, we all go back into the locker room. We are dancing around like a bunch of buffoons, right? Running into each other, knocking each other over. And, and what do you see? What is going to happen? What this, when you have a group of, of hormonal, excited teenage boys that just ascended the summit of the glory of 2A state Alaska basketball, you know what we did? One arm around this guy, one arm around that guy, at the top of our lungs. We are the champions, my friends. Bum, 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 bum. It was bad. It was bad. Spontaneous doxology. And as Paul considers the unfathomable plan of God to show mercy to Israel, and to the Gentiles, and the entire world. Like our high school basketball team, he bursts into this spontaneous song. This is how he ends chapter 11. By this, a doxology means a hymn of praise, and you often see it at the end of a word in ancient literature. 
And he busts out in this doxology, singing the praises of God. And this is so beautiful. He shows us several things here. First of all, the unending wisdom of God. Verse 33, oh, the depth, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In the 1930s, there was a man named William Beebe, and he became the first marine biologist to uh, ocean dive and observe deep-sea animals in their natural habitat. And he designed this little thing that you see him poking out of here. It was called the bathysphere. And this bathysphere, was all it was was a metal ball with a window and an oxygen hose. Why? Because it's 1930, right? And that's all they could come up with. But they, they, BB, he goes down into the depths of the ocean to places where nobody in human history had been before. And you imagine what it would be to see things, to see creatures that nobody's ever laid eyes on before. These wonders of the ocean depths. And we know how many things have we seen and discovered in our own oceans since 1930. And now we're getting out into beyond our atmosphere and seeing things in the universe we've never seen before. And we're still scratching the surface of what God has made. Imagine us getting into our own little bathysphere and exploring the mind of God. He says in verse 33, the depths of the riches, everything that he's made, everything that he is, and the wisdom and knowledge. And he uses these two words, and they're similar, but they're not the same. Knowledge means facts, knowing the facts. Wisdom means knowing how to use those facts and apply those facts. And here he says God has infinitely both. God knows everything. Of course he does. He made everything. But not only does he know everything, he knows how it all works and how to use it all for his purposes. I was thinking about our sound guys back there. Ian's back there. or John's back there. The master manipulators of that sound. Have you been back to that soundboard? It's insane. Like, you'd have to know how to run a 747 to operate that thing. And there's all these buttons and sliders and bells and whistles, and I don't even go anywhere near it. But here, those guys know every button, right, guys? Every button, what it's for, how to use it to give us the maximum worship experience possible, right? You should wait and see what we got next week. I'm coming down from the ceiling. It's going to be smoke machine. It's going to be awesome. No. So here, here you go. Here's God. Here's God at the sound cart of the universe. And he knows what every little single button and slider and light are for and he knows how to use them. And God is perfectly, sovereignly, mercifully controlling human history. Now some of us are going, God's in control? Then why is this happening? Why is that happening? Because at times it certainly doesn't feel like God is in control. Or if he is in control, he can be a monster. So we have to step back and listen to the next thing he sings about. The unsearchableness of his ways. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. You see, we've been using the analogy of a puzzle. And you and I, from our perspective here on earth, we can only see the puzzle pieces. God's the one that not only sees the picture on the box, but he designed the picture. All right? Any of you guys that are into like weaving and cross-stitching, and I don't even know, I don't even know all the terminology, but when you're looking at the backside of the weaving, it's a mess, right? It's chaos. And in a lot of ways, all we see at times is the ugliness and the chaos of life. But we have to trust in the God who is weaving this tapestry. And on the other side, he sees the picture. He's actually creating the picture. And to trust the words of the prophet Isaiah that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are beyond our thoughts. I was thinking about this. I love messing with bugs, all right? 
and I can just show how much smarter than I am than a bug, like that bug has no idea what is going on in my mind, right? And I'll hold that bug up, and the bug will like run to the end of my finger, and just when it thinks it's getting to bug freedom, put another finger up, right? And now it's on the free, and it's and it's just this thing, and I put another one up, and I keep going on this unending torture bug treadmill thing. Now the stupid little bug doesn't know what I'm doing. He doesn't know my thoughts. He doesn't know what I'm going to do next, right? He's just a little bug. And I think about like how much infinitely farther apart the gap between my mind and God's mind is than me and this little ant running on my finger. We do not understand his ways. We do not know what he's doing and why. No one could have called and predicted how God was going to move in human history with Israel and using their rejection to then bring it out to the Gentiles. and bring the, Nobody would have been able to figure all that out. And listen, we don't know. Here's what we don't know. We don't know how God is using everything for good. We just know that he is. And that can be a hard place as his creature to sit. And we need to be very careful and very slow to say phrases like, I know God did this because of that. And I know that God wanted me to this and that. Now, does he lead? Does he guide? Absolutely. But we need to stay humble and recognize we cannot box God in, that we cannot trace all of his ways. In fact, that's what this word means. He says how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. These words both mean it's like tracking an animal in snow for us in Alaska, uh, trying to track this animal. It says no one can follow all of God's footprints. We can't, we can't go and see how he's using all these things, but what we have to do as his creatures is believe that he's both sovereign and good, and even though we don't know how he's using it all for our good, we can know that he is using it all for our good. We don't know how we're going to get to the end, but we sure are told in the Bible how, that, what, what the end is going to be. And he's coming back, and we're going to look just like him, and we're going to see that everything he did was right and better than how we would have done it. This is a tough place to sit, and this is where he goes next in his song, Unanswerable Wonderings. We have these questions, we have these questions we're not going to get answers to. First of all, counseling the counselor. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Now think about this. He's saying, no one saying, God, come on into my office. Yep, yep, have a lay down on the couch. Let's, I, we need to talk, right? Now God, you've been doing a pretty good job, to be fair. Um, love the detail on the Milky Way. But you know, it seems like recently you've been hitting those hurricanes a little hard. I'd back off on that, right? And, and he says, who would have the audacity to try to tell God what's what? To try to advise him, to try to give him counsel. I was thinking about this. It'd be like a, like a child going in to, you know, see the doctor, okay? And the doctor says, you, you need a shot. And the, the kid looks at him and says, if you come anywhere near me with that needle, I'm going to flip it around and use it on you as a weapon, right? You better back away, doctor, Right? Now here's this little five-year-old who does not know more than this doctor. And yet all he sees is this shot sure looks like it's going to hurt. It sure looks scary. And to trust that the doctor knows infinitely more than they do, and they're actually doing this even if it temporarily hurts, ultimately, for your good, for your health, for your growth. Now we know it's ludicrous. We know it's ludicrous to walk into God's, into God's office and tell him how he's supposed to do things. But you know what I find in my life? How often I pray and live as if I do know, know more than God does. And I need to tell God what's up. I need to tell him how to operate, what he's supposed to do in my life, how I think things are supposed to go. And that doesn't mean that we don't come honestly, you guys. It doesn't mean that we, we don't approach the mountain of God and ask him for things. He wants us as his children to come and ask for his things, right? 
to ask him. He says, you have not because you ask not. And he wants us to come humbly as we are, admitting our fears and our frustrations and our our anger with him, but to ultimately be willing to come acknowledging that his ways and thoughts are infinitely higher and better than my ways and thoughts, and I have to trust him in that. We cannot counsel the counselor, and we cannot give to the giver. He goes, who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Who's given God something in which he owes us? See, in the context of Romans, Paul says, no human has ever done anything for God that would force his hand where he has to hook us up. He has to give us salvation. He has to give us right standing. He has to let us come to the peak of the mountain and behold him. God owes us nothing. But often we live like he does, right? We got a chip on our shoulder, some entitlement attitude going on. I know I do. And the fact is, it's actually me owing God an unpayable debt. Because I spit in his face. I rebelled against him. I went astray. I profaned the name of my holy God. But you know what he gave me in response? He gave me Jesus. He gave me the thing that I did not deserve. He showed me mercy, compassion, and action in the person of Jesus, dying in my place and raising to a new life that he's freely offering me to be unified with. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then he explodes into this one final line that summarizes everything about God in reality. This is amazing. The last one is the majesty of God is unmatched. The majesty of God is unmatched. Look at verse 36. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, this is incredible. We could do a a 20 sermon series on this. I love the way F.B. Meyer says that all these words that we just read are monosyllables. In other words, they all have one syllable. For, from, him, and through him, and to him are all things. Twelve words, twelve syllables. He says a child just learning to read could easily spell them out. These words can be found in your first grader's primer. So they're easy to say, but who shall exhaust their meaning? We could spend the rest of our lives unpacking and living in the reality of what Paul is saying as he finishes this doxology. And in fact, the same guy, Dr. Meyer, he unpacked each of these little three phrases in a way better than I could. So, so what I want us to do um, is we're going to read these. And if you go to our website on, on underneath each of our sermons, click on the resources. You can download these PowerPoints, and these will be up there. They're not in your notes. But I want us to read these, these three things. Um, and this first part is from him. And I'm going to put uh, Meyer's words up on the screen. If you'd read these with me together. The entire scheme of redemption, the marvelous history of the chosen people, The universe of matter, all have emanated out of God. From this stream of all created things, let us climb to him who is their source and origin. In him, let us learn to fill our own souls to the very brim. All things come from him. Second one, through him. Read this with me. Through Jesus Christ, the mediator, God has poured the entire grace and wealth of his nature to bless and help us. There is no good thing that does not come to us through the second person of the Trinity. That's Jesus. Through him, God made the worlds. Through him, we have received reconciliation. Through him, all grace abounds toward us. All things from him, all things 
through him. The last one, all things back up to him. Read this with me. Creation, providence, redemption. All are tending back to God. The tide is moving toward the throne. Glory will result from all that has happened within time. If you want to make sense of your life, we must, we must understand these three contexts, these three concepts, and live in light of these truths. I think about your life right now. Think about wherever you are at. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you are a slope worker. You're a commercial fisherman. You are a, a retiree. You're a student. You're a parent, a friend, family member. The first thing he says is everything comes from him. God is the source of all things. He created you. Now think about the implications of that for a second. Everything in your life, your lot, is from God. It's intentional. And you think about, now not evil, we know that evil doesn't originate from God. That was man's choice. But, but everything, think about your physical body. That came from God. Your specific personality, your specific gifts, the relationships you have, the trials that you're going through, the salvation that you've been given, the job that you, all of these things are gifts, 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 even when they don't feel like gifts, that God has given you. He's the ultimate source of those things. Starts with him. And then we say that we see that it all goes through him. Not only is God the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. See, if God was to let go of his grip on the universe, it would all dissipate. He's the one that holds all things together, Colossians says. Our only shot at persevering through the lot that God has given us is to be held in the grip of his grace. You're only shot at having healthy relationships with other people, being an effective witness at your workplace, to be able to make it through the trials of your life that God's leading you through, to be able to use your gifts in a way that will impact eternity, that you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The only way we make it through those things is to be held by the sustaining power of the risen Jesus. All things from him, all things through him. And he says, ultimately, all things go back to him. He is the purpose of all things. The reason God created us, the reason he sustains us is for his own glory. Now listen, that's not cocky because it's God. Credit where credit's due. If everything comes from him and everything's done through him, then it only stands to reason that it goes back to him. No boasting on my part. It's all God's. All glory to him. And listen, that's also the best thing for us, to delight in him, to thank him, to praise him, is the best thing that we could ever experience. And whatever your lot in life is, it will ultimately lack meaning and purpose and joy if we miss this. You see, we all worship something. Worthship. We give worth to something in our lives. But if we give more worth to the people in our lives, to, to, the, to the job that we have, to the gifts that we've been given, if we give ultimate worth to the gifts and not to the giver, then what we're going to find ourselves is miserable, slopping around in the mud and missing the majesty of who God is. We were created to worship. And again, we revisit the John Piper quote 
and he brings it all to fruition. Oh, but first let's quote Paul. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, to God, be glory forever. All the glory goes to him because it's all from him and through him. Amen. That's how Paul closes this section. So John Piper's words here. God has designed and guided history, all of it. Both its disobedience and its obedience. Both your disobedience and your obedience. So that in the end, it will most fully display the glory of God, seen in the reliability of his promises, that we can trust the promises God's given to us. We talked about that last week. And the magnificence of the mercy, of the compassion and help that he's shown you. Why? To prevent human pride. It's not from me. It's not through me. It's not back to me. Not glory to Justin forever and ever, but to our God. And it produces white, hot worship of who our God is. This is a peek at the peak. This is the entire purpose of Romans, right? To show us that God, who created us in the first place, that when we went rogue as sinners, he had this grand purpose in mind the entire time of how to use all of human history to bring us back to a place where we could delight and glorify him, delight in him and glorify him. God in his mercy has welcomed the prodigal home. And when he sees you moving back toward him, repenting of your pride, closed mouth, open hands, he runs to you, and he wraps you up in his arms. He says, welcome home. And when he, sees, when he sees us beaten up and left for dead in the ditch, the good Samaritan, he picks us up, he cleans our wounds, healing us with the wounds of his own, and he gives us riches beyond our wildest imaginations. It all comes from him. It all is held through him, and therefore it's all given back to him for the glory of his mercy. Now, oftentimes we end, and I, I pray, and then the band sneaks up here while everybody's eyes are closed, but what we're going to do here is, um, it, it's fitting for us to end with the doxology of Paul, to sing the doxology uh, our own, to praise God from whom all these blessings, from whom all these blessings flow. So if you would stand with me, we want to close and, and sing this together, and there's a second verse that I'll show you that has some cool, brings together the, the verses that we're reading today, but let's, let's, let's praise this God as we get a, a peek at the peak. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and